2: Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello, and welcome to show 322. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Can I just say thank you everyone for the comments last week on the show regarding the interview I did with Linda Spilkler? What lovely, honestly. You know what I mean? I was actually worried at the beginning. Do you know what I mean? If, if no one would kind of dig it or get it or anything like that. But, you know, around and about on Facebook and Twitter and everything like that, it's been lovely. So thank you so much. I'll tell you what's coming in today's show. First up, we have our very own aims with looking back at genre history. Then the main fiction is Descartes' Stepchildren by Robert Shearer. And sandwiched somewhere, I don't know yet, in between all that, we have a little introduction by our very own assistant editor, Adam. I've actually cut it from Adam was kind enough to let the Sofa Notes have a lecture by Harry Turtledove. He, Harry Turtledove. Harry Turtledove. He came over to MacPherson's College. This is where Adam's, this is Adam's dear job, works there. And he organised this lecture from... And again, the alternate master of science fiction there, Harry Turtledove. And I just want to play, because I love the intro as well, what Adam does. Do you know what I mean? He's got his kind of a quirky little thing. And I thought, oh, that would be nice just to kind of give a little bit of a tease and a little bit of a play on the, the Starship sofa. See if we can get you over to the sofa notes. So look out for that as well. That's all coming on at today's show. So we'll kick off with Amy H. Sturgis. Ames.
3: Hello, ladies and gentlemen. It's time for another look back into genre history. I hope that your 2014 is off to a great start. I put on the back burner my original plans for today, which I will get to next month, uh, because I'd like to focus today on a tribute, a rest in peace, if you will, to an actor who has just recently passed. U.S. actor Russell Johnson was born on November 10, 1924, and died on January 16, 2014. He is best known as The Professor on Gilligan's Island. Gilligan's Island ran from 1964 to 1967, but it has lived on for generations in syndication. And like many children of the 1970s, I grew up watching reruns of that show. I don't think it needs any introduction. And no, I'm not going to spend the next 10 minutes defending Gilligan's Island as science fiction or really as anything else. But I will say as one of its redeeming factors that Russell Johnson made the cerebral scientist a cool figure uh, and a sex symbol. And I'm sure that years later, his guest starring role on MacGyver was at least in part a nod to the fact that the professor on Gilligan's Island could create a viable radio essentially out of a couple of coconuts and a piece of string. But there was more to Russell Johnson than Gilligan's Island. He was an actor on television and in film in a variety of genres, including military action and quite a healthy number of impressive Westerns. He was also before and after Gilligan's Island, what you might call a hero. He was born in northeastern Pennsylvania And he graduated from Girard College, which was a private boarding school for orphaned children in Philadelphia. During World War II, he served in the U.S. Army Air Forces. He flew 44 combat missions and was shot down in 1945 over the Philippines. He had to ditch his plane in the water and broke both of his ankles in the process. He won a Purple Heart for that mission. He also was honored with the Air Medal, the Asiatic Pacific Campaign Medal with three service stars, the Philippine Liberation Ribbon with one service star, and the World War II Victory Medal. Upon returning home, he joined the Army Reserve and used the GI Bill, to fund his studies in acting at the Actors' Lab in Hollywood. All right, I said he was also a hero after Gilgans Island. After his son was diagnosed with AIDS, a disease that later took his life, Johnson became a full-time volunteer for AIDS research fundraising and was tireless in that role really until his death. Okay, so I've made the case that he was a good man, and it's clear that he'll be remembered forever for his role in the situation comedy, but why am I talking about him on looking back into genre history? Well, let me put it this way. My husband and I have a theater room in our house. It's got our big screen and surround sound, and we've decorated the room with vintage science fiction film posters. I was thinking about Russell Johnson when I heard the news of his death, and it occurred to me, sitting there looking around the room, that two of the posters on our walls were posters of Russell Johnson films. He, in fact, had quite an impact on science fiction in the 1950s and 1960s. For example, he was in It Came From Outer Space in 1953, This was Universal Pictures' very first film using the 3D process. It was also a film that was taken from a screen treatment written by Ray Bradbury. It was unusual for its time because the alien invaders were not malicious. They weren't coming to overtake and destroy humanity. In fact, it's kind of the exception that proves the rule about uh, Cold War era uh, xenophobia and paranoia because it describes aliens who just crash-landed on Earth by accident and simply want to fix their craft and continue on their way. Okay, they do sort of borrow uh, the local townspeople to help them repair their spaceship, but when they're done, they release those townspeople unharmed. It's definitely worth watching. Russell Johnson was also one of the stars of 1955's classic This Island Earth, which was based on a novel of the same name by Raymond Jones. This film has several claims to fame. It was... In fact, well-received and uh, critically successful, as well as popularly successful, when it came out, dealing with scientists who are taken by the Metalunans to Metaluna. Uh, They came to Earth for uranium deposits and to get the scientists and bring them back to help defend their planet in a war. But it turns out the Metalunans have decided they're going to relocate to Earth, and uh, that's bad news for us. It was well shot and also particularly noteworthy for its use of color and special effects at the time. It's also well-known now because it was the film that was lampooned in Mystery Science Theater 3000, the movie. It was a bit of a departure for the Misty 3K guys because usually uh, Mystery Science Theater focused on films that were so bad they were good, or sometimes so bad they were just bad, and in this case, for the cinematic film version of Misty 3K. They chose a film that was actually quite successful and critically acclaimed. But Mystery Science Theater 3000, the movie, is hysterical, and what they do with this island earth is quite funny. Just as proof here of how cool he was, Russell Johnson accepted an invitation to speak at one of the Mystery Science Theater 3000 conventions because of his role in This Island Earth. Uh, It was the 1996 uh, Misty 3K Convention Con Expo Festorama 2 Electric Boogaloo event. And he was, to no one's surprise, a hit with convention goers. As I'm sure you know, the 1950s was a great time for atomically enlarged mutant creatures of all kinds, and Russell Johnson appeared in one of those films, The Attack of the Crab Monsters, in 1957. That was a Roger Corman film. Corman credited that movie in particular with teaching him how to combine effectively horror and humor. Attack of the Crab Monsters was part of the double bill. It was the main feature that was followed by Corman's Not of This Earth. A year later in 1958, he starred in an unjustly forgotten film, one that I quite like, called The Space Children. This is a thoughtful film dealing with the potential for nuclear war. A group of scientists are brought together by the government to plan a nuclear war, to prepare for what seems to be a day-after-tomorrow holocaust kind of situation. And as they are doing these preparations, a brain from outer space visits the planet, and it communicates telepathically with these scientists' children. And in the end, it moves the children to sabotage the rockets and prevent the war that was getting ready to happen. If you haven't seen it, give it a try. Johnson's relationship with science fiction wasn't limited to film. He was also in science fiction television, most notably in two time travel episodes of The Twilight Zone. He appeared in 1960 in the episode Execution and in 1961 uh, trying to prevent the assassination of President Abraham Lincoln in the episode Back There. He was a professor in both of these episodes sort of foreshadowing his later role on Gilligan's Island. He was also in the Outer Limits episode, Specimen Unknown, as one of the crew members of the research space station, Adonis, who discover an unusual object attached to the station wall and bring it inside to study it. It begins with these ominous lines. At 10 minutes after 6 on January 8th, Lieutenant Rupert Howard stumbled upon something clinging to the wall of the space lock that appeared alive. He called them space barnacles for temporary identification. They were not. Ooh. Rounding out his science fiction resume, Russell Johnson also appeared as a guest on the series The Invaders, a U.S. show that ran from 1967 to 1968. This was a show that was definitely ahead of its time and a major influence on the X-Files, which paid tribute to it by bringing Roy Thinnes, the main actor, into the arc as a recurring character of the X-Files. The show focused on an architect named David Vincent, who was minding his own business and just happened to see a UFO and... In following up on this, uh, discover that there's a secret alien invasion already underway on the planet. He travels from place to place trying to foil the aliens and to warn the public, uh, which is obviously very skeptical, does not take him seriously, of the danger that they are facing For a short-lived series, it had long-term impact, including tin-related novels, a series of comic books, lasting influence such as that on The X-Files, and there is perennially discussion of a new Invaders film to be made for the 21st century. Who knows if that will actually happen, but it's a rumor that makes the rounds every so often. All of what I've said is in the service of pointing out that Russell Johnson was more than the professor on Gilligan's Island. Now, certainly, if that's all he had been, well, that's more than enough to secure his immortality in popular culture and the public consciousness. But I'd just like to encourage you to think about Russell Johnson as a fixture in 1950s and 1960s science fiction, a recurring face in some important films and television series, and part of the fabric of our genre history. Thank you for joining me for this tribute to a good man. And I look forward to joining you soon for a look even Farther back into genre history, thank you.
2: There you go, do there's no copy. Well, there probably maybe some copyright with here <laughs> Oh, yeah, man, it's pretty early. So, next up is the main fiction, and it is Descartes Stepchildren by Robert Shearer. Robert Shearer is the professor and chair of the Department of Physics and Astronomy at Vanderbilt University. His research area is cosmology, encompassing the work of dark energy, dark matter, and the Big Bang. Oh, come on, man, Robert. Get in there. (laughs) And the large-scale structure of the universe. Oh, man, that's just fantastic. He is also the author of quantum mechanics textbook... (laughs) And it's published several popular science articles and science fiction short stories. Go on, Robert, I'd just love to sit down with you and just ask you like loads of, like dead simple questions. You know what I mean? Where's the centre of the universe? <laughs> Actually, that's quite an unusual answer to that. And the narrator is our very own Logan Waterman. Logan, this is fantastic, sir. Thank you so much. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present.
4: Descartes' Stepchildren by Robert Shearer. Might the most important question sometimes be Does it matter? When I give interviews, which I rarely do anymore, the same question invariably comes up How does it feel to be the most hated man in the world? I usually mumble something about the integrity of science or the need to pursue knowledge no matter where it leads. What I never, ever do is to reveal the truth. I remember exactly how it all began. Well, that's actually a lie, like so many other lies I've told myself over the years. I'm a good enough neuroscientist to know that nobody ever remembers exactly as it happens, especially something that happened nearly 20 years ago. Jenny and I spent our first anniversary in a rental cabin, nearly heaven, in the Smoky Mountains just south of Townsend. Jenny had fallen in love with the American outdoors the day she got off the plane from Ireland. She adored the unruly countryside, the feeling of endless space, so unlike the well-behaved little landscapes of Europe. The yard behind the cabin sloped gently down to a burbling creek where a weathered plank bridge crossed to the other side. A carpet of dandelions stretched from the cabin to the creek, broken only by a solitary birch tree, which cast a lengthening shadow in the late spring twilight. Ginny nestled close to me, under the tree, knitting a tiny green sweater." She paused to pluck a dandelion, giggled, and blew the seeds into my hair. "'Happy anniversary, John.' I looked into her eyes, the eyes of the woman I truly loved, and gave her a kiss. "'What do you want to do tomorrow?' I asked. "'Let's hike to Klingman's Dome.' "'Are you kidding? You're five months along.' Jenny patted her stomach. "'And still in better shape than you.' She dropped her knitting and stood up. "'You don't hike all the way, silly. You drive up most of the way, and then walk the last half mile on a paved trail.' Even a feeble pregnant lady could do it, and I'm not feeble. Jinny pulled out her Swiss Army knife and gouged a knock into the trunk of the birch tree. What was that for? I'm marking our first anniversary. We're going to come back to this same cabin every year on our anniversary, and I'll notch this tree. She gripped the trunk of the tree with one hand and swung in a circle around it, waving her other hand in the air. And eventually we'll bring our children, and then our grandchildren, and they'll all play out here under our tree. Jenny let go of the tree and put her hands on her hips. I think we should have at least four children. Okay. Or maybe five. Okay. Maybe twenty-seven. Okay. She wrapped the top of my head with her knuckles. Oh, is anybody in there? Are you even listening? Oh, yes, I was listening. You are not. You had that far off. I'm really thinking of something else. Look in your eyes. Jenny sat down next to me and picked up her knitting. What's the problem, John? Sorry, I was just worrying about work. That project with Gallagher on the 15-Tesla MRI. We made a breakthrough about a month ago, and now Gallagher wants to shut it down. He won't tell me why. That's just like Gallagher. Shuts down the project and then publishes the results himself, said Jenny. I always told you to stay away from him. Her Irish accent got stronger when she was angry. You neuroscientists. You're so male. You think you know everything there is to know about the human brain. But you don't know anything about people. You lie down with pigs. You get made into bacon. But Gallagher is a great scientist, I said. A pioneer in his field, a real genius, a true arsehole, she said. She wrote the word in the air with her knitting needle. A-S-S-H-O-L-E, arsehole. I've seen how he treats his students, how he treats you. The man has no respect for anyone's God-given dignity. Michael doesn't believe in God. Oh, he does too believe in God. But his God's name is Michael T. Gallagher. Jenny turned the sweater to inspect one of the stitches. It's no wonder Lydia finally left him. I heard she was the one who left. You must be remembering it backwards, Dare. She hooked me in the ribs with a knitting needle. He would never leave Lydia. Did you see them at the Christmas party? He's like a puppy dog around her. No one else would put up with him and he knows it. Maybe I got it backwards. I don't know. I don't really care about Gallagher's personal life right now. I'm more worried about the project. If you ask me, you've obviously stumbled onto some great discovery and now he wants to claim all the credit for himself. Ginny finished a row of the sweater and set down her knitting. Which project was it, anyway? Don't you remember you were a volunteer? Jinny tapped her forehead. I do remember that. Fifty dollars for half an hour of work. Not too shabby. But all I can remember is sticking my head into an enormous tube and looking into a mirror. And then we had to recite some weird sentences. I think, therefore I am. It's the only thing I can remember. All the sentences were supposed to be self-referential. We were trying to understand the nature of consciousness. Why are we self-aware? Where does it originate in the brain? I do remember the mirror was kind of dirty. You need to clean your equipment better. Jenny brushed away of auburn hair back from her eyes. So, what did you find out in your experiment? It's amazing, really. I think we've been able to pinpoint the locus of consciousness in the brain. But I only got a chance to see a couple of the brain scans before Gallagher slammed the lid shut. At that moment, Jenny began to hemorrhage, and I forgot all about the experiment. The only sound in the recovery room was the steady beeping of the pulse monitor. I held Jenny's hand as she opened her eyes. John, where... She tried to twist in the bed, but the spiderweb of catheters and tubes held her in place like a fly. I looked into her eyes. Ginny, you almost bled out. It had to do a hysterectomy. Ginny lifted her head, looking around the room. No. She said, what about the... I didn't answer. I didn't have to. She could see the answer in my eyes. Was it a boy or a... A little girl. Too little. Too soon. Ginny let her head sink back onto the pillow. Katie, she whispered, we would have named her Katie, then closed her eyes. She would have been smart as a whip. Grown up to work in your lab, I bet. My friends in physics tell me that every measurement, every decision, splits the universe into a myriad of possibilities, like the branches of a tree. At that moment, I watched as most of our branches, the sound of laughter on a Christmas morning, the first day of kindergarten, children gathered around a dinner table, withered and disappeared. I leaned over the bed and awkwardly tried to reach around the tubes to hug Jenny. No matter what happens, I said, I will love you. Another month passed before I tried to track down Gallagher. His secretary was gone when I showed up, probably out to lunch. Gallagher's office door was ajar and cold fluorescent light flickered through the opening. I knocked. No answer, so I pushed the door open and went in. The office stank of whiskey and stale vomit. I found Gallagher slumped back in his chair, staring at a manila folder of technical reports on his desk. An overturned bottle of Jack Daniels lay next to the reports, drizzling amber rivulets onto the desk. Michael, what's going on? I asked. I reached for the bottle, but it slipped from my hands and bounced on the carpet, splashing whiskey in all directions. Gallagher looked up at me with dead eyes. John, he muttered. "Come away. You can't shut down the project, not now. Gallagher coughed. And then he said in a hoarse whisper, "'I looked into her eyes and I saw—' "'Flem rattled in his throat. "'What are you talking about?' "'Gallagher raised a hand to his face and swatted an invisible fly. "'It was nothing.' "'He closed his eyes. "'I grabbed his shoulders and shook him, and his eyes popped open. "'Idiot!' he said. "'I'm not drunk, just tired.' "'Gallagher lifted a folder of papers from his desk. "'Now please leave my office.' "'I hesitated, then took a step back. "'I looked at the data, Michael.' At least some of it. Scans of your brain and mine. It's marvelous. Marvelous. It is marvelous. Gallagher waved the folders in the air. Here's a full report of the experiment. It's a ticket to the National Academy of Sciences for sure. Maybe a Nobel Prize for both of us if we decide to publish. Gallagher tossed the folder back onto his desk. The only problem, my friend, is that we can't publish it. Huh? Gallagher waved a finger at me. Tell me honestly, John. What do you think of me? "'Well, you're a great scientist. Maybe the best in the department. "'You think I'm an unscrupulous bastard out to steal your work.' "'No, I don't deny it. I am an unscrupulous bastard. It served me well my entire career. I'm not making any apologies.' Gallagher slammed his fist down on the desk. "'But I never planned to steal your work. I would never stoop that low. "'This project, it's just—it's a fantastic discovery. "'What could be more marvelous than the objective measure of consciousness?' We could do animals next. Maybe some of the great apes or... Stop! Gallagher coughed, almost seemed to choke. You only saw part of the data. He slid his chair over to his computer and pecked at the keyboard. A gray brain slice filled the screen. Your brain, John. Now we apply the self-referential stimulus. A red spot flared in the prefrontal lobe. Exactly. It's amazing. We've discovered the locus consciousness in the brain. Gallagher said nothing. He pulled up another scan. My brain. He punched a key, and again, the prefrontal lobe activated. Gallagher pulled up a third scan and hit the key again. Nothing. What's that, I asked. I don't get it. Not everyone shows activity, evidence of consciousness. I bit my lower lip, trying to understand what he meant. That's not possible. Everyone's conscious. Everyone, John? Gallagher arched an eyebrow. How can you be so sure? There's a computer at Carnegie Mellon that's passed the Turing test. I've seen the damn thing myself. I'll swear up and down it's a conscious individual, but it's still only a machine. There's nobody really there. So apparently the same thing is true of people. Some of us really are conscious. Some of us are just machines. Shells. Zombies. I slapped Gallagher's desk, knocking a few papers onto the floor. It's ridiculous. Don't you think we could tell if there were zombies among us? No. That's the whole point. Consciousness doesn't produce any difference in external behavior. That's why you can't prove that anyone is conscious except yourself. Cogito ergo sum, eh? You just presume everyone else experiences reality the same way you do without objective proof. You believe it because it seems reasonable. You assume it because the alternative seems unthinkable. But presume and believe and assume aren't part of the vocabulary of science, are they, John? But it makes no sense. What could cause some people to lack self-awareness? Gallagher stood and began pacing the room, drifting into a pedantic professor mode. I think you're asking the question backwards, John. Consciousness isn't favored by evolution. Self-awareness doesn't confer any survival advantage. I think our ancestors probably started out without it. Maybe consciousness arose as some freak mutation a few thousand years ago, and then spread through the population. But you couldn't tell who truly possessed consciousness until now. I stared at the computer screen. But how many of our subjects were, uh, non-conscious individuals? We did 71 scans, and 14 showed no response to the stimulus. That's almost 20% of the sample. John lowered his voice almost to a whisper. Think about it, John. One-fifth of the people on the planet, they're empty biological machines. I was speechless for a moment, trying to take it all in. I pointed at the screen. And whose brain? That's Lydia, John. My wife. Gallagher stared past me. I lay in bed next to her, looked into her eyes. I saw nothing there. The woman I loved, probably the only person I ever really loved, a vacant shell pretending to be a human being. I suppose I should have tried to comfort him or something. Jenny would have known what to do, but I just stood there staring at him. After a few minutes, I said, Look, Michael, maybe we. Could hold on to the data, then publish when mankind is ready to accept this. Bullshit! Mankind is never going to be ready for this. Gallagher picked up the manila folder on his desk, and thrust it into my chest. Take a look at the report, John. Jenny's in there too. Why don't you take a peek at it? See if she's really who you think she is, or maybe she's just an empty shell too. I flinched backwards. What's wrong, John? Don't you want to know? Gallagher smiled crookedly. "'You still want to publish, now that you know what's at stake for everyone on the planet?' "'He pushed the manila folder into my hand. "'I began to tremble, and papers fell from the folder onto the floor. "'I looked away, not wanting to see what was printed on them. "'I'll do you a favor, John. It'll be the only nice thing I've ever done for you.' Gallagher meant to retrieve the papers. "'Your wife is perfectly normal, as conscious as you or me. "'Congratulations. Unlike me, your life is not destroyed.' i realized then that tears were streaming down my cheeks gallagher sank into his desk and stared out into space this was the dream of my life a great discovery everlasting fame a trip to stockholm and i'm going to have to give it all up he pointed at the middle of the folder for me this project is finished you do what you think is right but don't dig too deeply you might not like what you find i sat on the data for almost a year gallagher for all his faults was no fool But surely there could be no harm in pursuing the truth, no matter where it led. And wasn't that my duty as a scientist? I finally mentioned it to Jenny as we sat under the birch tree, just after she'd carved a second notch. I don't know, John, she said, shaking her head. This just doesn't seem right to me. It's got a bad smell to it. But that's what scientists do, Jenny. We pursue the truth. We can't suddenly decide that there are things man was never meant to know. That's like the plot of a bad movie. Don't you remember... "'You will know the truth, and the truth will make you free?' Ginny rolled her eyes. "'Don't start quite the Bible at me, John Benson. "'Then your eyes shall be open, and you shall be as gods, "'knowing good and evil. "'Are you really getting this for the sake of the truth? "'Or do you just want the glory of a great discovery? "'Because if it's the glory you're after, "'you might find it's not all you expected. "'Success rarely is what you thought it would be.' "'I laughed, but unfortunately, "'failure is exactly what you thought it would be. "'I'm not in it for the fame.' Really, I'm not. Look, Jenny said, I'll still love you no matter what you decide, but be careful. Don't do something you'll regret later. Think about what you're doing and about why you're doing it. For the next few days, I pretended that I was thinking things over, but in my heart, I had already decided. I wrote up the paper and sent it off to nature. I told myself I was doing it for the sake of science. Mankind deserved to know the truth, and surely Gallagher had been too distraught to think clearly. Is there a part of the brain that activates whenever we lie to ourselves? If so, it must light up pretty often. Two weeks after the paper appeared in Nature, Michael Gallagher took his own life. The annual meeting of the Organization for Human Brain Mapping took place later that summer in Houston, and I was invited to give a plenary talk. I was expecting a coronation. What I got was a crucifixion. Poorly substantiated claims for a locus of consciousness. A philosophical conjecture based on extraordinarily thin evidence. More like phrenology than neuroscience. And those were the comments from my friends. As I left the conference room, I noticed my colleagues keeping a discreet distance. Failure is contagious. I parked myself by the donut cart and buried my sorrows in a mound of fried fat and sugar. I was biting into my third vanilla crawler when I heard a voice above the general murmur. Have a colonoscopy? Huh? I said. Nail surgery? Then I noticed the speaker. A gaunt man in a black turtleneck and black trousers. He slipped into the empty bubble surrounding me and handed me his business card. Dr. Lee, he said. "Tsinghua University, Beijing. I work in pharmacology. Uh, that's odd. You don't look Chinese. I'm not. Look at my card. I read his name from the business card. Professor Robert E. Lee. Lee grinned, showing nicotine-stained teeth. I grew up in Virginia. I'm part of the reverse brain drain. The Chinese hired me away from University of Kansas five years ago. Doubled my salary, tripled my lab space. You wouldn't believe how much money they've been pouring into my field. In another decade, they're going to own pharmacology. He pulled out a pack of camels and shook out a cigarette. Hey, you can't smoke in here. <laughs> Sorry, I forgot. Lee slipped the cigarette into his pocket. And people say the Chinese government's repressive. they'll let me smoke wherever I want to. Let's go out onto the balcony. I followed him out the door into the moist cocoon of the houston summer diesel fumes drifted up from a truck stuck in traffic on the street below lee lit a cigarette and blew a smoke cloud toward the door those people in there he said they're idiots you're a genius and none of them realizes it really i'm starting to have doubts myself well don't i'm working on the same problem in my lab but from a different perspective i was asking if you'd ever had a colonoscopy or dinner surgery anything involving sedation and have you i shook my head Nope, no colonoscopy, no dental surgery. Well, that's not quite true. I did have my wisdom teeth out, but that was a long time ago. Well, then you probably had Versed. It's a brand name of Mendozolam. Amazing little drug. Knocks goony, but you can still respond to requests, obey simple directions, and that sort of thing. And then you wake up and forget everything that happened. What does that have to do with my research? Nothing, actually. Lee sucked on his cigarette and blew a streamer of smoke in my direction. But we've developed a new variant, Metazolam-C. From the outside, it appears to have no effect on behavior. I could be under the influence of Metazolam-C right now, and you'd never know it. But I would know it. It slowly reduces the level of subjective consciousness till it's snuffed out entirely. We can generate a condition pharmacologically that exactly mimics the zombie state that you were talking about back in there. Lee took another puff on his cigarette. But we don't have a good enough MRI to pick out what's happening in the brain. Well, that's where you come in. You want brain scans of subjects under the influence of your drug. Exactly. I brought a supply of midazolam MC with me to the conference, and I can be in Nashville next week.
1: If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
4: Can we do this? I looked at my colleagues milling around like cattle in the conference room. Ignorant fools. What an amazing chance to show all of them how wrong they were. Absolutely. I said, I'll make the arrangements. I can have everything set up by next Thursday. And one other thing, said Lee, what would it take to get you to move to Tsinghua? I could get you an excellent position. Oh, Jenny and I like it just fine in Nashville. I'm not really movable. Come on, said Lee. Everybody has a price. He flicked an ash from a cigarette over the balcony onto the street below. And in most cases, it is surprisingly low. I cleared out my schedule for a week, easy to do over the summer, and brought Lee in on Thursday as promised. He set a small leather briefcase on the lab bench and popped it open. Three brown plastic medicine bottles covered in Chinese characters nestled in foam rubber inside the briefcase. Behold Metazolam-C, said Lee, the key to your vindication. Lee opened one bottle and shook out a pair of pea green pills into his palm. I won't take a dose large enough to induce a rake and loss of consciousness. I want you to monitor my behavior and check the MRI simultaneously. And then you can try it yourself. I eyed the pills. Are you sure it's safe? Lee popped two pills into his mouth and gulped them down. Safer than aspirin? We tested it on several hundred Chinese volunteers. No short-term side effects, no long-term side effects, neither. Amazing drug. I slid Lee's head into the 15 Tesla MRI and went back out into the control room to pull up a view of his brain on the screen. The locust of consciousness burned bright red on his prefrontal lobe. No effect. No effect. I said into the speakerphone connected to the MRI chamber. Nothing. Don't lose faith, my friend. Takes a while for the effect to kick in. I can already start to feel it. Just make sure you keep me talking. Why? You'll see. Tell me something about yourself. Who's your favorite philosopher? Philosopher? I never really studied philosophy. Waste of time. Pity, Lee sighed. I was a philosophy major in college. Teaches you things you can never learn in science. Take Descartes, for example. Brilliant man. Completely right, of course. All we can ever know for sure is what goes on inside our own heads. The glowing red spot on Lee's brain faded to a sickly pink. And Machiavelli. He wasn't really as bad as everyone thinks, just ahead of his time. The pink spot faded away, but Lee kept talking as though nothing had happened. He realized that the necessity has to triumph over abstract moral principles if you ever want to accomplish anything. How does it feel? I asked. That was what feel? The loss of consciousness. You're not registering anything on the MRI. I'm not? Well, I guess we've proven our point, eh? But what does it feel like? Feel like? What do you mean? I feel fine. How do you feel? I sagged into my chair, confused and frustrated. A few minutes later, Lee's prefrontal lobe began to glow again, and I powered down the MRI. Lee pushed the door open and reviewed the computer record. <laughs> Excellent, my friend, he said. But I don't get it. Nothing changed from the drug took effect. Well, of course nothing happened. You already postulated that yourself. There's no external difference in behavior, but no one is going to believe this. On the contrary, everyone is going to believe it after they experience it themselves. He dangled the bottle of metazolam C between two of his fingers, shaking it gently and rattling the pills inside. No need for you to go into the MRI. We know now the effect of the drug correlates with the consciousness center. But try it yourself. See what it feels like. He held up the bottle to my face. Just two little pills. I backed away, nearly tripping over the swivel chair and grabbing the corner of the desk to steady myself. John, Lee said. I told you it was safe. 300 Chinese prisoners couldn't be wrong. How else are you going to vindicate yourself and prove that your critics are morons? I've got Jenny to think about, and you can't do her any good if your career's in shambles. Lee stretched his arms wide. Look at me. You see any side effects? I looked at Lee's smiling face and then at the bottle. I nodded silently, and Lee shook out two of the pills into my hand. Then he reached into his pocket and took out a small camera. What's that? It's called a video camera? Lee chuckled. They're all a rage in China now. I know that. I mean, why are you making a video "'Cause otherwise, you'll never believe.' I gulped down the pills and chased them with a glass of water. Lee began prodding me for my opinions on classic movies. At first, I simply felt distracted, preoccupied, like the times I've tried to talk to Jenny with my mind on something else. "'Yes, the first Godfather movie is one of my favorites,' I found myself answering automatically, only half thinking about what I was saying. "'No, I didn't like the two sequels.' Then I seemed to be crawling back into a corner of my own mind. Not really an out-of-body experience, more like a dream in which I was both a participant and a spectator. My answer to Lee's questions became automatic, without volition. Citizen Kane? I saw it once in college. Never understood the appeal. Who is was this person talking to Lee? I loved Casablanca, but none of the other Bogart movies. Whoever was doing the talking seemed to share all of my opinions. Then finally, blackness and oblivion. When I came to, Lee showed me the video. I recalled the discussion of my favorite movies, but I apparently followed this with a full 10-minute lecture giving him a detailed explanation of the quantum mechanics behind magnetic resonance imaging. At one point, I'd even written on the whiteboard the Hamiltonian for a proton in an oscillating magnetic field. I shook my head. I don't remember any of this. Well, no reason you should. This happened after the drug took full effect. You weren't conscious, at least not as we understand it. Conscious enough to give you a quantum mechanics lecture well of course that's exactly what the well what should we call them people have no center consciousness not zombies surely how about blanks this is exactly what the blanks experience or rather what they don't experience and they go through life behaving like you or me but he tapped his forehead there's a big gaping hole where their self-awareness should be and you just live through it yourself i looked down at the floor why so glum john Once we publish the Midazolam c results, no one will be able to contradict you. Hell, they can experience themselves if they want to. I guess I was half hoping to be proved wrong. It's just... John, we're scientists, remember? Fearless seekers of truth. It's really quite heroic of us. Lee pulled out an e-tablet and began scrolling through screens. What are you doing? I'm clearing my December schedule for the next few years. You don't want to do the same? Why? December's when they give out Nobel Prizes. Contrary to popular belief, sharing a Nobel Prize doesn't make you rich. After taxes, it was barely enough to buy nearly heaven and a couple of acres of the surrounding land. But developing a simple version of our MRI test for consciousness, something so cheap and easy that it could be installed in every doctor's office in the country, that did make me rich. I ran my thumb over the five notches in our birch tree. Jenny had carefully carved them into the shape of a pentagon, the temperature was unusually warm for a May evening in Tennessee, somewhere in the 80s, but under our tree it felt frosty cold. Ginny sat back against the tree and snapped open her copy of the ladies' home journal. She slapped a page with the back of her hand. Look at this article. Would you want to marry a blank? No bunch of states are requiring the Benson test before they issue marriage licenses. They call it informed consent. What have you done, John? What had I done? Never mind the blanks all insisted they were perfectly normal, perfectly conscious, just as human as the rest of us. After all, hadn't I predicted exactly this behavior? Ginny dropped the magazine onto her lap. And now parents are starting to test their own children. Children, can you believe it? And I'm not even sure I buy this stuff about blanks not having consciousness. You said yourself it's just blood flow in the brain. We're working on a better test, I said. We're trying to map the neural pathways directly, but it's going to take a while. What about the Midazole MC? A cheap parlor track. Am I any less human when I'm asleep? Does that mean me any less of a person? No, but and that abominable friend of yours, Robert Lee, do you know what he's been up to? He's not a friend. He's a collaborator, a former collaborator. A collaborator. Jenny rolled the word around in her mouth, tasting every syllable. Yes, that's the right word for it. Didn't you see the news last week? Lee discovered that a massive dose of midazolam C, something like 10,000 times the normal dose, permanently wipes out the center of consciousness. The Chinese have adopted it as a humane alternative to capital punishment. But I thought you didn't believe any of this was real. Jenny stood up and hugged me from behind. I'm your wife, John. I reserve the right to contradict myself. Maybe it is real. I don't know. But I just don't like the way this is going. Ginny let go of me and studied the pentagram carved under the tree. Oh, they sent us the forms from the adoption agency yesterday. Good, what do they need from us? Well, that's all pretty standard. Proof of stable employment. Some outside letters testifying to our good character. Routine genetics screening. I made an appointment with Dr. Kyle for both of us. Dr. Kyle's examination room displayed the full range of his family practice. Cartoon giraffes and elephants cavorted on the wall behind brochures on hypertension and heart disease. I noticed a small stack of brochures nestled under a baby elephant in the corner. The Benson Test for Children. Tissue paper bunched and crackled as I helped Jenny slide down from the examination table while Kyle studied his med pad. How many parents have their kids tested, I asked. Kyle looked up. Tested? Oh, you mean the Benson Test. Kyle glanced over his shoulder at the brochures. When I first started offering it last year, very few, he said. Now it's about two-thirds. Most parents want to know if their child is a blank. "'And what do they do if it is a blank?' asked Jenny. Dr. Kyle shrugged. "'We referred them for counseling. "'I have a few pamphlets.' Dr. Kyle squinted at his med pad. "'But let's get to your results. "'I have to say the news is mostly good.' There was an awkward silence while we waited for the mostly good. Kyle nodded towards me. "'Professor Benson, you've got a marginal disposition towards our atrial fibrillation. "'Probably nothing to worry about until you're a lot older.' And you've actually got a slight resistance to digestive system cancers. Colon, stomach, pancreas. Nothing out of the ordinary. Kyle tapped his med pad and turned toward Jenny. And Mrs. Benson, you've got a marker for increased HDL levels. But we knew that already from your cholesterol test. That's a good thing, of course. But there's one issue. You do have some markers that predispose you to early-onset Alzheimer's. I hugged Jenny, who began to cry. No, no, said Dr. Kyle. It's a very small lifetime risk, certainly less than 20%, maybe even less than 10%. That's not the point, I said. We've been hoping to adopt a child in this. A disqualification, said Jenny, choking back a sob. No adoption agency will place a child with us now? I'm sorry, Kyle said. I'm so very sorry. He handed Jenny a Kleenex. There's a bit more to the report. That won't be necessary, I said, helping Jenny to her feet. Thank you, Dr. Kyle. When I was young, I thought that life's tragedies were like lightning. Terrible when they struck, but rare and easily avoided if one was careful enough. I know now that tragedy is as unavoidable as a gentle spring rain. Sooner or later, everyone gets wet. The sun was just starting to burn off the morning fog when the Cumberland River when I drove Jinny to the Happy Hearts Orphanage for her Saturday morning visit. It was our 11th anniversary, but Jenny refused to go to nearly heaven until after she'd visited the orphanage. We exited off Briley Parkway and pulled onto the entrance road to Blanktown. A sign hanging on the chain-link fence in front of an abandoned airstrip announced, You are now entering the Cockrell Bend Federal Protection Zone. Please have your papers ready. The road was totally clogged up, so I put the car in park and turned to look at Jenny. She was sorting a stack of books in her lap. What have you got there? I asked. Oh, uh, these are the books I brought. The kids love when I read to them. She shuffled the books for me to see each one. I've got One Fish, Two Fish, and Mr. Pines Mixed Up Signs. And then for the older kids I bought, On the Banks of Plum Creek. I'm reading them one chapter every week. The kids are so cute. I can't believe their parents would just abandon them. They must have opened up another checkpoint because traffic started sliding forward. We pulled up to a small brick gatehouse where the pudgy federal agent greeted us. I need your papers, please. I handed him our documents, where he scanned under a UV light and returned. Don't lose those, or you'll have a heck of a time getting back out. We do this every week, said Jenny. I think we'll manage. The agent scowled at Jenny, but waved us through. Good rule of thumb don't provoke the government agents, I said as we pulled past the checkpoint. Especially when they carry guns. Jenny craned her neck to get a final view of the guardhouse. Guns? Don't you think they're overdoing it a bit? You know, it's for the protection of the people who live here, Jenny. Jenny snorted. Hey, I said, nobody is forced to stay here. No, said Jenny, but they can't get jobs because nobody wants to hire them, and they can't get money from the government unless they live here. It's all a bunch of hogwash. Did you hear what happened to your friend Lee? He's not my friend. The Chinese government caught him embezzling research funds, so they gave him a dose of his own medicine. That's not funny, Jenny. I didn't say it was. We drove down a clean white concrete lane. Exuberant patches of yellow marigolds and maroon petunias bloomed in red clay pots on either side. A green soccer field stretched out on the left side of the road, with shops lining the right. As we passed a bakery, I lowered my window and took a deep breath of the warm spring air, filled with the yeasty sense of bread and the odor of fresh mown grass. This isn't so bad, I said. It's sort of like a gated community. But the gate locks from the outside, said Jenny. She put her hand on my shoulder. Couldn't we adopt one of these kids? They can leave the orphanage if someone will adopt them i glanced at jenny we've been through this before you know what i think it would just feel weird living with a blank it would be like living with a robot love isn't a feeling said jenny it's something you chose to do we pulled to the gray cinder block orphanage a bit sterile but certainly not run down a cardboard rainbow arced over the front door orange yellow block letters above the rainbow proclaimed that all children are loved at happy hearts last week said jenny there was this little boy with curly red hair maybe seven years old i tried to read in the phantom toll booth but he kept crying and asking when his mummy was coming to get him jenny opened the door to get out tell me something john if i did get alzheimer's would you abandon me maybe marry someone else of course not but i'd be even less conscious than a blank why would you stay with me i had no answer for her Thirteen notches on the tree, Jenny made a point of dropping by my lab for lunch on Fridays. She said that by the end of the week, it was always too depressing to be home alone. She waited while I put one of the squids through its paces. Are you starting a new experiment, John? she asked. Later this year, we'll be tracing single neural pathways. We're years away from mapping anything functional, but eventually we should be able to. I was interrupted by a pounding on the door. I yanked it open, and a disheveled young man pushed his way in. He stank of urine and looked badly in need of a bath. Help me, he said. Can you please help? Who are you and what the hell do you want? I asked. They're after me, he said. They've got baseball bats. I heard footsteps thumping down the hall. More from reflex than conscious thought, I pushed the man into a supply closet at the back of the lab where we store our surplus electronics. Following him in, I pulled the door shut, forgetting that it locked from the outside. Jenny, get back here and let me out. I yelled through the wire mesh window in the door. Jenny started back toward the supply closet, but then stopped when a crowd of students appeared at the door. They were better dressed than your usual mob, a sea of khakis and striped polo shirts, but a few of them did have baseball bats. Jenny drew herself up to her full five-foot, two-inch height. What do you want here? This is my husband's lab. We chased a blank down the hallway, said the man in the front of the crowd. He ran into one of these rooms. Sorry, but you can't come in here. "'said Jenny. "'There's a lot of delicate equipment. "'Oh, it won't stay long.' "'The man leaned forward, brushing against Jenny. "'She whipped a shiny metal cylinder from a lab bench "'and brandished it against his stomach. "'Listen, young man,' she said. "'This is a vial of Cobalt 97. "'If I pull off this lead plug, "'you'll be lucky to have children with only three eyes.' "'The student looked down at the cylinder and back up at Jenny. "'He said nothing for a few seconds "'and then took a step backwards. "'Come on, guys!' He said, let's check out the rest of the rooms in the hall. Jenny closed and bolted the front door of the lab and then came back to unlock the closet door. I emerged and took the metal cylinder from Jenny's hands. Jenny, this is my thermos, I said. I shook it and liquid sloshed inside. It's full of coffee and there is no such thing as Cobalt 97. Jenny gave a little half smile. I knew that, but they didn't know that. I shook my head. No one can bullshit like the Irish. I'll take that as a compliment. It was. The blank was shaking, damp with sweat. Here, sit down. I'll call security. They'll get you somewhere safe. I gave him a cup of water and he slurped it down. After the man was escorted away, Jenny confronted me. Why'd you help that guy? Well, he needed help. He was scared to death. But you don't think blanks are really aware. You're always comparing him to a computers. You don't care if someone turns off a computer, do you? What could I say? The spasm of violence against the blank swept the world for several weeks, then died away as though it had burned itself out. Seventeen notches on the birch tree. So where are the squids? asked Jenny, stepping into my lab. I don't even see any aquariums. Not squids, Jenny. Squids. S-Q-U-I-D-S, I said. Superconducting quantum interference devices. They measure the magnetic field from the currents in your brain. I padded a golden helmet hanging from a thick steel bar. They're all mounted right inside this scanner. A tangled rat's nest of cables ran from the helmet to our data port. I pointed a chair underneath the helmet. If you sit right there, I'll put the scanner on your head. Jenny eyed the helmet. My goodness, she said. That looks like a hairdryer from the 1950s. Sorry, I'm not wearing curlers. Then she looked at me. John, she said. You know the only reason I'm doing this is to prove you wrong after all these years. "'And the only reason I'm doing it is to find out the truth,' I said. "'Now we can measure the currents of the brain directly "'and trace out exactly how the neural pathways are organized. "'We can figure out, once and for all, who is self-aware and who is not. "'No more doubts.' "'Jenny scraped her chair forward a few inches, "'and I adjusted the scanner on her head. "'Okay,' said Jenny. "'Now would you want me to recite something? "'Look into a mirror? "'Do a little dance?' "'No.' "'How about this?' Jenny said. "'Things fall apart. "'The center cannot hold.' My Anarchy is lost upon the world.' and "'No need to say anything,' I said. "'We can get a good reading from your resting brain. "'It takes only a few seconds.' "'I studied the bank of screens above our data port. "'Okay, all done.' "'Jenny took off the helmet and smoothed back her hair. "'I scrolled through the readout on the data port. "'Jenny, you are the final scan. Fifty blanks and fifty normals. "'Now I can let the computer go at it. "'Can I stand watch?' "'Don't waste your time. It's going to take a while. "'If you go home, I'll call you as soon as I get the results.' Okay, John, we'll call right away when you get the answer. Jenny walked to the door and turned her head. Right away. I heard the tap-tapping of her footsteps down the hall. I sat down on the front of the wall screen and began issuing commands. Bring up subject number one, begin tracing neural network. Subject number one, announced the computer. John C. Benson. The screen filled with a gossamer network of quivering lights glowing and fading as electrochemical signals pulsed through the neurons. Even our massively parallel quantum computer would take several minutes to complete the analysis. I remembered an Asimov book I had read as a kid, something like The Brain or The Human Brain. At the end of the book, Asimov brought up a paradox. Is the brain sufficiently complex to understand its own complexity? As I looked at the computer, I realized we had finally cracked the Asimov paradox. Even if we couldn't understand how the brain worked, our computer could. Compared to that, my old MRI studies were just like a phrenologist looking at the bumps on a skull. Analysis complete, announced the computer. Computer, identify volitional center. Most of the network faded, but a faint band of neurons glowed over most of the left hemisphere. They twisted and nodded into a dense glowing ball at the prefrontal lobe. Volitional center identified, announced the computer. I almost jumped out of my chair. Sixteen years of work. Sixteen years of faults. Start sixteen years of groping in the dark, but I had finally found the truth. I processed the other scans. When I finished and looked out on the window, a fat orange moon squatted low on the horizon. I ran the final correlation between the MRI test results and our new neural tracings. The match was excellent. Then I slouched back at the chair and stared up at the ceiling. The human mind is a messy thing. Not for us the sharp crystalline beauty of physics or even the cozy regularity of chemistry. I guess I should have felt vindicated. Now I had absolute proof there really were people who lacked consciousness. But I knew what I had to do next. Computer, please initiate Project Gallagher. Your request is confirmed, Professor Benson. Project Gallagher requires a password. I hesitated a moment. The password is Descartes Stepchildren. My postdoc and graduate students were just as smart as me, but I'd grown up with Java and C, while they knew only a world of computers that talked. So it was child's play to hack the computer and falsify the data without leaving anything for anyone else in my lab to detect. My deception wouldn't last forever, but I was years ahead of the competition, and I knew this entire research area would quickly become taboo. It was almost 9 o'clock when I finally called Jenny. I got the results. The neural tracings show volitional centers in all the subjects. There are no blanks. John, you mean everything that happened? It was all a mistake. Your mistake. A few seconds of silence, followed by a stifled sob, and then nothing. Money can't buy happiness, but it can certainly buy physical security. Jenny and I bought a hundred acres of land surrounding nearly heaven, and we turned it into a fortress with high fences, surveillance cameras, and armed guards. I ran my hand over our birch tree, nineteen notches. Jenny still used her old Swiss Army knife to carve them. A soccer ball whistled over my head and struck the tree, rattling the branches and knocking down a few leaves. Sorry, Dad, I didn't see you standing there, said a grinning teenage boy with red curly hair. I waved to him. George, go get everyone for dinner. It's our anniversary and Jenny wants to eat early tonight. George ran back to the network of dormitories on the other side of the creek and rang the dinner bell. At the clanging of the bell, children walked, ran, and skipped out into the picnic tables surrounding the birch tree, chattering and laughing in the late afternoon sun. Jenny emerged from the back door of the cabin, carrying a steaming pot of spaghetti. She set it down on one of the tables and hugged me from behind. Happy anniversary, John. Now be a dear and help me get the other pots. So Jenny finally got her wish for a large family. Thirty-four boys and girls. Former blanks whose parents didn't want them back or couldn't even be found. In a world flooded with orphans, even the genetic undesirables like us were allowed to adopt. The innocent joy of the children is some consolation for everything else I've endured. I watched the sun rise over mist enshrouded mountains every morning and wondered if I'd suffered enough to atone for the evil that I unleashed on the world. I don't mind the hate mail or the threatening phone calls. I have a clear conscience. I made my final decision, and it was the right decision." Of course, now I'm a virtual prisoner in my gilded mountain cage, but that's a small price to pay for a world in which parents will no longer abandon their own children or blameless people be herded into ghettos. No, my own punishment is much more personal, known only to me, in fact. I can't really blame Gallagher for falsifying data and lying to me 18 years ago. I know he did it out of compassion. He had no way of knowing that someday my neural tracings would uncover the truth. So now I sit under a birch tree in the hazy twilight, and I look into Jenny's eyes, the eyes of the woman I truly love with all my heart, and I see nothing. No matter what happens, I whisper to her, I will love you.
2: There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Robert. Robert, thank you so much for that. This story first came out just this, or just last year in Analog Magazine of Science Fiction. There you go. How cool is that? So, I mentioned at the beginning of the show, we had a, we've got a lecture, a live lecture over there. It was recorded at McPherson College in Kansas. And this is actually, like I say, this is where Adam works. You know, I think Adam is the press officer there and he's organized this whole event. And I'm guessing he does, you know, a lot more than that would, it was just, you know, Adam mentioned it a while ago then I thought, oh, that would be great to kind of, you know, something a bit quirky like that to put in, but I didn't know if, you know, he's very kindly. So I'll put a a link onto that, you know, the, the college there. So please pop over there, you know, and have a look around if you want that, you know, if you're interested in that sort of thing, go over there and check it out. Like I said, Dr. Harry Turtledove, this is what Adam wrote us, because I just wanted a little bio, just a kind of a little bit of blurb, just to set the scene for it. Dr. Harry Turtledove, master of alternative history fiction, gave a rare public lecture on January the 16th at MacPherson College in MacPherson, Kansas, on the topic of what if, what alternative history fiction tells us about our past, present and future. Starship Sofa's very own assistant editor, Adam, secured Harry's lecture for the college where he works in his full-time job and he's proving the full, providing the full audio of the lecture here for Sofa notes. And like I say, this is just Adam's little introduction. You know, he kind of had to stand up there, good on you, Adam, as well, in front of the whole, I would, Adam, if you can let us know as well, I wonder how many people kind of were there watching it, do you know what I mean? Because that would have been a, a, a big thing for you. So we are very lucky to have it over at SofaNord. So that's a, a nice reason to come over there, support the show, get all the stuff. Like I said, we keep putting everything in there in SofaNord. And this is a, a kind of rare treat indeed to get a lecture from Harry Turtledove.
0: Good evening, everyone. Good evening. Uh, my name is Adam Pratt, and I am the public relations coordinator here at McPherson College. Um, basically the the PR guy here. A few first things first. Do please make sure that you've uh, had some coffee or other refreshments just behind that pillar where I can't see it. And then this is a related issue. Bathrooms are downstairs uh, or upstairs, uh, one flight kind of back toward this wall, should you need them. So on behalf of everyone here at at McPherson College, I just want to welcome you to the third of five lectures this year in the uh, college's annual series. And tonight, it is my distinct privilege to introduce to you Dr. Harry Turtledove. Now, the first time I ever asked Dr. Turtledove for something, just slightly more than a year ago, he turned me down. (laughs) Now, to be fair, he was absolutely within his rights to do so. Uh, you see, I volunteer in my spare moments as a assistant editor for a science fiction podcast out of England that's called Starship Sofa. At the time, I was contacting Dr. Turtledove to ask permission to run one of his recent stories on the podcast for free. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, as there was a strong possibility that the audio rights still had money-making prospects for him, he politely declined. I said I understood, then I asked for permission to run an older story, also for free. (laughs) To my delight, he agreed. And at this point, he also set me straight by asking that I just call him Harry instead of Dr. Do- <laughs> <little while> <laughs> in instead of Dr. Turtledove, which I've done 3 times in this intro just to drive him nuts.
4: That's a short drive don't worry.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Well, after this, I then asked him for four more stories for free. And again, he agreed. Then, at Jim Dodson's urging, uh, my boss at the time, by the way, uh, I asked Harry whether he would consider coming to McPherson College to lecture. And once again, he agreed to consider traveling from California and to, and I quote now, bore the people on the other side of the lectern. <laughs> Later, after plans were confirmed, he mentioned in passing, somewhat distressingly, I'll talk with anyone dumb enough to want to talk to me. <laughs> but let me reassure you right now, you have little chance of being bored tonight. Harry has the distinction of writing more than 100 novels, which places him among the most prolific science fiction and fantasy authors basically of all time, uh, It's kind of on a par with Isaac Asimov and Ray Bradbury in in terms of number of
4: novels.
0: (laughs) He now you cannot deny this one. He is a Hugo Award winner uh, for the novella "Down in the Bottomlands." And for those of you who managed to escape growing up a nerd, um, the (laughs) the Hugo Award is basically the Oscars of science fiction. science fiction literature mostly though he's known as the master of the alternate history genre a lot of his work takes real historical events and tweaks them in one or more ways that are realistic or fantastic or a little bit of both some of his best known works are the atlantis series uh, which has european explorers landing on the east coast of north america which is broken off from the continent to be situated in the Mid-Atlantic. Another one is Guns of the South, in which Confederates win the Civil War after receiving AK-47s from time travelers. (laughs) And the World War series set at the beginning of World War II when lizard-like aliens invade. I love this kind of literature. (laughs) Beyond his resume, I think you'll find Harry, as I have, to be a funny, generous, intelligent, and all-around decent human being. So if you enjoy his talk, I will gladly take credit (laughs) for the bizarre alternate universe in which you don't... um, I get the blame. No, (laughs) blame Jim Dodson. (laughs) Uh, And so I am very pleased to turn... This microphone over to Dr. Harry Turtle There you go.
2: Go on, Adam. There, <laughs> when you first stood up there, it was a bit like, "Go on, bloody hell!" <laughs> a little swig of whiskey. We had to go, Adam. So, like I say, please pop over the sofa notes if you're thinking of becoming a member. That's a great reason. There's lots of other reasons in there as well. We've got more stories coming. Amy's got some audio books narrated as well. We're going to pop them in. And loads of stories with their own individual artworks coming up. And all, like, the, the e-books, what Starship Sofa's done, Tales to Terrify. All the kind of videos from the, kind of the past, what we've done, the time travel lecture one. The The Hunger Games, the Sherlock Holmes one, all that's in there. And we've also got, don't forget, if you're signed up to the Sofa Notes, you get to see live, if you want, if you choose, the David Brin live interview with Amy H. Sturgis. That's coming up on Sofa Notes, 9th of February. Do pop over to the Sofa Notes. Well, that's it. Hope you enjoyed it. A really, we've been rather nice this one. And we'll look forward to seeing you next week. Until then, I'd just like to see you. Good night from me. Will our
1: heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity
3: unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of stories.
1: Activation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for us. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50